Hey, did you know it's almost time for Wartstock? Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 to 7. We'll have a wide variety of live music with headliner Ugochi. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more at wortfm.org. I'll see you there. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard. Hello and welcome to a public affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Nate Carlin, and I'll be your host for this hour, subbing in for S.D. Deneur. I'm here with guest Andrew Boyd. He is a climate activist and humorist who recently wrote a book about his experience navigating his own climate grief while talking to experts on the topic. The book is called I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor. It gives the reader a roadmap to navigate their own struggle with climate grief and the coming catastrophe, all with a nice flourish of self-deprecating humor. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you for being here today. It's a pleasure to be here, Nate. Hello, Madison. <laughs> so for our listeners, can you lay out the, the basic premise of the book? Uh, what, what's the structure like here? Ah, well, uh, it began with a, I mean, I've been a lifelong activist, uh, worked on affordable housing, anti-apartheid, uh, you know, anti-nuclear weapons, uh, you know, achieving marriage equality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, lifelong activist. In um, the last decade dedicated to climate, uh, which... You know, uh, and as, uh, you know, in my history as an activist, it's been very much a, you know, I'm a fairly hopeful, enthusiastic, high energy, um, you know, kind of person. Uh, you know, I would sort of, you know, okay, here's a problem. Here's something that's broken in the world. Here's something called that's calling out to be fixed. So let's, you know, identify the problem, figure out the solution, gather our people, you know, strategize the, 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 the landscape and, you know, persevere till we uh, either win or half win or you know just keep the issue in play uh, to win later um and uh, you know nelson mandela says it always feels impossible uh and then you win <laughs> you know so it's that kind of hope has worked for all those causes and uh, after a decade in the climate movement and working on this you know very uh, you know uh, complicated pernicious um uh, civilization-wide uh, ecological crisis uh, with climate at its center and, and, and the urgency of that and the, the, the vast consequences of that and the, the fact that we, um, you know, the fossil fuel companies through by, by casting shade on the science and mobilize, you know, spending $100 million on lobbying efforts to block alternatives um, and maintain, um, you know, their power and their, their business model and prevent society from uniting to make the transition off of fossil fuels to renewables. Uh, we didn't achieve what we needed to do, even though we knew we needed to do it. The fossil fuel companies knew 50 years ago how this would play out and blocked all progress. Uh, we missed the opportunity to make a, uh, a graceful and strategic and thoughtful, uh, well-considered transition. And we are now in a situation where we have blown past or are about to blow past many of the red lines, the ecological limits that scientists have told us not to. And so in, you know, my, uh, analysis and sort of trying to find a way to operate in good faith uh, as a climate activist, trying to reckon 
with the with the climate with our with our the, the truth of our climate situation, it became clear that we are in for some kind of catastrophe. Hmm. You know? um, and so then the premise, so the premise of the book and the title, the, the concept, the core concept in the title is this notion of a better catastrophe. If we're locked in for some kind of catastrophe, what do we need to do? And uh, how do we need to feel and think about uh, achieving a better catastrophe, the best catastrophe that's still available to us, given uh, the failure, our failure to act in time? Um, so, yeah, so it's full of strategies, stories. Uh, dispositions of spirit, frames of mind, uh, tools uh, like, you know, gallows humor um, and uh, all, you know, that uh, help us navigate our way through, uh, whether that's grief or uh, strategies for um, what is still worth doing kind of strategies. Yeah. So that's uh, that's in in a nutshell. There you go. <laughs> uh, taking a trill, you know. A trillion column inches and boiling it down into two and a half minutes. There you go. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it seems like a, a recurring question in your book is like how to define hope and whether hope is still something useful to have, useful to, to cling to. Uh, can you talk about the, the different types of hope and lack of hope maybe yeah. that you came across in the book? Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Uh, it, it, the book is in many ways a both a personal journey and an analytical journey in search of a uh, more robust kind of hope, a kind of hope that's fit for purpose for the 21st century, a, a kind of hope that can, that can get us um, uh, to stay the course when we know what our goal is, is a better catastrophe as opposed to, uh, you know, solving the problem. So I went off and talked to uh, Americans from every uh, walk of life, uh, and in particular, tracked down uh, eight climate thought leaders uh, to who, who I felt were not pretending that things were better than they were, um, but still were engaged, uh, you know, politically, ethically, you know, as community organizers, as as scientists, as uh, psychologists, uh, as uh, you know, spiritual leaders. Uh, everyone from uh, Adrian Marie Brown, you know, famous, uh, well known, or increasingly well-known community organizer and, and a pioneer of visionary fiction to uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, indigenous botanist to twins, that traditional wisdom with scientific uh, understanding to uh, Tim De Christopher, for example, who is a, a celebrated climate activist um, and then who ended up in prison for two years for blocking uh, an oil and gas uh, auction of leases um, and then went to Harvard Divinity School. So, and, and, and just to, Give one example from that. He he helped me understand hope, um, the difference between optimism and hope. Um, and he was he was saying the way I understand hope, like he said, like a, a results based optimism based hope is not going to work for us uh, as the climate crisis uh, and their the impacts unfold. And for him, hope was the will to hold on to our values in the face of difficulty. So a very different understanding of hope, very active uh, hope as a verb, hope as a practice, hope as an ethos, hope as a kind of resilience um, in the face of challenges. So that was interesting. Um, and um, yeah, you know, from the, the, the subtitle, the sub subtitle of the book is uh, an existential manual for tragic optimists, can do pessimists and compassionate doomers, you know, simple optimism, simple pessimism, not going to get us through the 21st century. So 
these more heartbroken yet resilient twinnings of a tragic kind of optimism and a can-do kind of pessimism uh, seemed uh, more appropriate. And um, yeah, and in my readings and conversations, I found four different kinds of hope and, and, and in fact more, but um, a kind of a passive hope, a heroic hope, um, a stoic hope, and a grounded hope. So there's lots of different flavors of hope um, too that the book explores. Depending on your sensibility, you might be drawn to one or the other. So uh, maybe leads into my next question, which is uh, in your book, you cast a, a pretty wide net on how to approach the climate crisis and what someone can do about it. Uh, sometimes the interviewees in your book have maybe contradictory views on uh, hope, different ideologies. Mm -hmm. um, why did you decide to, to cast such a wide net, feature such disparate voices? Well, uh, the commonality was people who are not pretending that things were better than they are and who were staying engaged. So that was the commonality. And within that, uh, it felt like um, uh, diversity of views was helpful. And the, and the book is very much not like prescriptive, a hard prescriptive, like this is the one way. It's like offering uh, many, you know, offering many pathways, uh, given the complexity of the situation, given how different people are and that they'll approach it. You know, people are going to be, uh, maybe a crisis in a crisis do we become different than we are to become more ourselves anyway that there's a lots of different um sensibilities and uh lots of different ways to invite people into the solution so i wanted to uh, offer a wide repertoire um so i talked to scientists um activists psychologists uh philosoph you know eco philosophers etc joanna macy for example and um uh yeah so like Gopal Dayaneni, one of the leading voices in the climate justice, environmental justice movement was like, you know, he didn't have much good to say about hope. You know, he was just like, look, our house is on fire. We need to do something about it. You know, the, like hope smoke kind of thing. And, and that was echoed, echoed with a couple, um, a couple of the other interviewees. Um, and I shared the perspective of Tim to Christopher, you know, very resilient uh, activist. Um, and so, yeah, I think, yes, and, you know, the, the yeah, so it's just, uh, there's, you know, and, and just to give an example, the, um, the uh, one of the appendices, which is an invitation to readers to, to, to uh, plug into the many opportunities to be part of the solution, and it's on the website under, you know, if you go to the website, bettercatastrophe.com, you'll have this list of these solutions. And I, I chose to break up the list in an unusual way by archetype, by how you identify what your core self is. So are you a warrior? Well, here's how you can plug in if you think of yourself as a warrior, if you want to be a warrior, if you're a good neighbor, if you're a visionary engineer, an elder, an artist, um, a rebel. And so it's, uh, the book is very much uh, inviting people in uh, where they're at. Uh, encouraging them to reckon, to to speak their climate truth, to reckon uh, with the reality of the situation, but then not give up hope, but also not, you know, not, you know, uh, like not inject the hopium, you know, not <laughs> <laughs> pretend that things are better than they are, but to find a pathway where, because there is so much we can still do, and it is so important that we do it. We're living in the critical decade where what we do now uh, about climate in particular, about our emissions and the 
and and how the how these climate impacts are going to play out across the inequalities in our society the justice piece is very critical here well what we do will have consequences over the entire century um, arguably over the entire rest of the history of humanity on this planet so it's an invitation um, to bring your best self um, and so it offers tools and stories and pathways and uh, yeah to that so that's that's the diversity <laughs> So, so what do you hope a, a, a reader will take away from your book? Is, is it supposed to give them a, a way to be more active? Is it supposed to give them more hope if they're feeling despair? Um, what do you see as the project here? Yeah. Great question. Um, I mean, I think it's less, the book is less, the book lays out the basic science, but doesn't, you know, hash that out in, you know, to the nth degree. It's not a, a doom scrolling book either. It's not a book that it has policy, uh, you know, it, it has the policy landscape, but it's not parsing out uh, that in a fine grained way either. I'm not a, I'm not a scientist, a policy wonk. Uh, you know, I'm an activist. I'm a humorist. I'm a, um, you know, a <laughs> like everyone uh, on the, in the world right now, a, a, a somewhat broken hearted, you know, existentially challenged human. And I try to, uh, walk my own path and bring readers along. So it's, and, and readers will say, uh, you know, readers will, readers and people who come to the events that I do a stand up tragedy uh, uh, book tour. I'm on this stand up tragedy book tour all across the country. Um, uh, and is to just provide like these human, very human, very, Acknowledging our imperfection, acknowledging our brokenness, acknowledging uh, the the predicament we're in, the constraints we're under, and offering uh, ways for people to still uh, to be honest. You know, it's about being honest and then acting. It's about being honest and then uh, taking action. So walking through our grief that we need, if we're blocking out the reality of things, if we're blocking out the truth, if we're refusing to go to the, the scary, painful places uh, about the reality of our situation, then we are, um, we're kind of demobilizing ourselves emotionally and spiritually. So this book tries to step people through their truth, uh, which can be painful, but it's necessary. And I use humor to make that more palatable, more possible, uh, more bearable, um, to leaven, uh, the, 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 the difficult news and then for people to then find their way into being part of the solution. So I think that's the, the project of the book and it just has an unusual uh, manner of doing it, you know, with humor and creativity and uh, a diversity of voices and not, and, and embracing the contradictions, embracing the dilemmas as opposed to choosing one binary and kind of forcing that down people's throats. So that's, that's, I think the, ethos of the book um and you kind of hit on that a little bit with the diversity of voices that i pull into these sort of wisdom teachers these spirit guides that i that i pull in that i interview um to be sort of helped with that project so it looks you know, like joanna macy and, and others yeah so it looks like we had a caller who doesn't want to be on air doug no. wants to know uh what happens if the scientists have it wrong and mother earth actually spits us into another ice age um well, I think there are some scientists that would say that is going to happen. <laughs> Maybe not an ice age. But, yeah. Uh, 
Right. I mean, and, uh, it's hard for me to imagine that, uh, you know, 97, it used to be 97, 10 years ago, 97% of the scientists sort of, there was a very strong scientific consensus that humans were causing global warming and that this was extremely unprecedented. And there's incredible numbers of scientific papers and data showing the hockey stick graph. And, you know, we're seeing the results of, of global warming now in a more visceral, uh, you know, right before our eyes kind of way in our own country, not just elsewhere. Uh, and not just, uh, you know, off in the future, but now. So I would, I would, uh, I think it's a worthwhile, you know, theoretical question, but I would say uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, it's, you know, it's, we're definitely in for real trouble and it's definitely a warming uh, scenario uh, of existential consequences. But let's just say uh, there's a, there's a, um, a cartoon, there's a funny moment in the book that I think is, uh, is, is worth, that speaks to this question of the unknown which is, uh, you know, a, a big, uh, a big conference center auditorium, uh, at the, at, you know, at the front, someone's, you know, it's got a slide deck and is going through all of the um, benefits uh, for making the transitions from fossil fuels to renewables, um, you know, uh, cleaner air, cleaner water, uh, safer communities, and he's just sort of, you know, going down the list. And then there's a grumpy guy in the back, you know, speak, you know, saying out loud to somebody, yeah, but what if it's all a hoax and we, you know, we create a better world for nothing? You know, so it's like, okay, we got, you know, yes, you know, science is a constantly, you know, perf you know, perfecting uh, process, right? That's the nature of the scientific method. Um, you know, it's always under scrutiny, always being questioned. Uh, so yeah, fine. But it's very clear that regardless of the larger macro, you know, we don't have to agree uh, on the, on our cosmologies or on the macro science to sort of note that uh, the less... Uh, poisonous things we bring up out of the earth and, you know, frack into our water and burn into the air, uh, the better off we will be regardless of whether we agree on the, uh, the grand science of it all. Um, I could tell a story about that, a tiny story, if you want, from my, from my book tour. I was in Portland, Maine, and uh, luckily uh, I, there was a snowfall, a lovely snowfall, and I hadn't experienced that in New York in like three years, which is another example of global warming at work. So I was up in Maine and, oh, snow, this is what it's like. And we went snowshoeing in the backwoods in a small town outside of Portland. And I heard a story about that town where someone who, you know, went to Dartmouth and believed very much in the climate science, but, uh, you know, understood that the people in his town were very split along the cultural divide about uh, global warming is a myth and global warming is, you know, uh, an existential crisis. You know, there was a split in the town. So instead of trying to you know, beat people up and get them to agree to his worldview, uh, he brought his proposal to the city council to turn a brownfield, uh, a polluted brownfield, into a, a huge solar array that would supply uh, energy uh, to the town. Uh, and he didn't mention climate change once in his presentation. It was all about this is how we can get <clears throat> cheaper uh, and cleaner energy for the town and actually have democratic decentralized control over it as a small town in that New England kind of way. And it passed uh, unanimously without mentioning climate change once, without forcing people to agree to the macro science. So there are ways to make progress um, without agreement there, uh, though I would argue that the science is pretty, you know, 99.99% solid here. 
Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. My name is Nate Carlin, and today we're talking with author Andrew Boyd about his new book discussing climate crisis. Feel free to give us a call at 608-256-2001 if you have any questions or comments for our guest. And it sounds like we have someone on the line. Joanne. Yes, thank you very much for the show and the uh, book, which I'll be reading shortly. I'm wondering about this notion of remote work. Uh, We all learned how to do it during the pandemic. Many of us were lucky enough, of course, with uh, jobs that were amenable to that. And suddenly all of that infrastructure, all of those Zoom calls and and all of that that, uh, training that we had was completely wiped away. Now, with remote work, think of how many gallons of gas we could save. Think of how much energy we could save from those big uh, skyscrapers and all of that, uh, filled with offices that need to be filled from 9 to 5 and all of that, and then cleaned, etc. There is so much we could save uh, in terms of uh, the infrastructure of our society, but we wiped it, wiped it away, and I think it's partly because the managers needed us to, to uh, be there to worship at their feet. Um, uh, and I'm just wondering... Uh, again, it's part of my personal despair that I wasn't able to push hard enough to to uh, keep those remote work systems going that could indeed not not completely save the planet, but provide us with so much more in terms of resources for the future that we're that we're just expending in in uh, uh, worthless ways right now. So, so thank you very much again. Joanne, if you're still there, um, thank you for calling in. This is Andrew, and I'm glad you're gonna you're keen to acquire the book and read it. Uh, I'd love to hear what you think of it when you do. Um, uh, again, just to mention the name, title of the book, and then answer your question. The I want a better catastrophe, and, and thank you for being interested. So yeah, I think you're making a really good point. Um, a lot of interesting things. I mean, it was a it was a huge tragedy. A million Americans died. Uh, you know, millions more across the world. Um, it through, you know, through us into sort of crisis, a mental health crisis. So the pandemic was a terrible thing, but it did, you know, as these things do, as these shocks to society or, or big historic moments, there's also, they also become teachable moments. Um, and I think you're, you're spot on that um, uh, it was one of the very few moments besides the recession of 2008, when we saw any, you know, uh, major uh, bends in the emission curves and we got to see, uh, you know, the the smog in Beijing and New Delhi sort of cleared and they were able to see, um, you know, their surrounding lands and uh, uh, animals, you know, return to places they'd uh, been banished from and, you know, all that. So a lot of interesting ecological things happened. We also saw governments find the money to do the, uh, to act at the level, um, to, to go into an emergency mindset and uh, find the resources to address the problem. Uh, and that was a model though it wasn't pursued nearly strongly enough for how we could, it was certainly evidence that we could respond to the climate crisis with a similar level of resources and emergency attitude. So, so there was a lot of lessons there that are relevant for climate, including your notion, you know, your, your point about uh, remote work, um, telecommuting. Um, and I think, you know, there's a balance. I think there is some value in people working face to face. There's a, it helps with, you know, uh, just bonding and, you know, trust building and relationship building. So there is a, it is, there is a balance. Um, and I don't think it's all been lost. I think there's a lot of workplaces that are in, in sort of a kind of a hybrid mode where people are working a little bit more from home, but are also going to the office. But I do think you're right that there's a, 
a little bit of a bad reasons why people are being brought back to work, uh, whether that's a worshiping, as you say, or maybe it's a kind of a surveillance, people not trusting their employees to do the work, right, as you're sort of agreeing here. Um, and they want to, you know, kind of surveil them and make sure that they're doing their jobs and all that stuff. So, but I do think there is a value in, at least in some workplaces, in face-to-face -face connection. You know, and a lot of this is about work, uh, white-collar work, blue-collar work. People have had to work through all the pandemic, you know, because of the, the manual labor and the, the retail, uh, the warehouses, et cetera. So this is applies to a certain sector. But yeah. Um, and then there's things like telemedicine, where a, a surgeon doesn't have to fly uh, or can't fly all the way across the country to do a specialized surgery. So there's robotics and AI that are helping the, the best medical minds uh, deliver their services halfway across the world. So there is some interesting developments there. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think that's a it's one solution among the, you know, the many hundred or so or many thousands or so that that need to be in the mix. Um, so thanks for flagging that. And thanks for being interested. Yeah, so uh, a lot of your book kind of feeding off of that is built around these paradoxes and you have this wonderful little vent diagrams that you have where you have opposites <laughs> yeah. in the same Venn diagram. Um, can you explain why paradox is so central to the, the climate crisis response and, and wh where you see it in, in the project? Yeah, that's a great question. Nate, I appreciate you um, uh, flagging that. And uh, we can think of it as a dialectic, uh, you know, that, you know, the yin yang, right? The black, the, if you remember the yin yang symbol, there's a sort of a shifting black and white equilibrium and balance and the, the little dots of the opposite color inside the other. So there's this, yeah. Um, but um, if you think about it, we're, we're in, uh, we're, we're facing and we need to hold a lot of contradictions uh, or a lot of competing uh, truths you know and and there are things that feel like opposites but that are both true and part of the journey here and part of the reckoning is to hold both of those truths for example um you know uh, are we all in this together yes and no you know where we share a planet we share an atmosphere we're all part of a global society that has caused this and is suffering this but you know we're, you know, we're, we're, as we say, we're in the same storm, but very different boats based on hierarchies of privilege and vulnerability and just, you know, geography, people are going to be impacted in extremely different ways. Uh, and, and the injustices and inequities in our society and our global society, but also in just our local communities, uh, the climate crisis will play out across them in really mean and unjust and unfair ways. So yes, we're all in this together and no, we're not. So both of those are true. Or uh, is it too late? In some ways, it is, as we talked about earlier, we're, we're going to, um, it is too late for certain kinds of solutions. It's too late to prevent the catastrophe, uh, but it is not too late to uh, mitigate the catastrophe. So it's, it's too late, and it's also not too late. It's never too late, never too late to act uh, in defense of people and the planet, and yet it is too late for some of the, uh, to stay under some of the red lines that scientists have told us not to cross. So that's not a reason to go into despair or doom, um, but it's a reason to actually fight even harder because um, as, as the you know, climate scientist man says, we're, we're not on a cliff, we're not going off, suddenly going off a cliff. We are on a highway 
uh, and we are trying to get off at the earliest exit. If we can't get off at the 1.5 degree centigrade warming exit, we need to get off at the 2.0. And, and, it's, and each fractional degree of warming is of great consequence and means the, uh, the difference between saving ecosystems and saving lives and not. So uh, that's just uh, you know, a couple examples of why paradox is so important. Uh, are, we, are we responsible or are, is it them? Is it us or is it them? There's a, there's a chapter title um, called um, We've Met the Enemy and He is Us. Know them, but somewhat us, but mostly them, right? Like, is it the fossil fuel companies or is it uh, every consumer? And uh, one person in that, we closed that chapter by one very, very smart climate activist saying, well, it's 98% the fossil fuel companies who knew how this was going to play out and actively prevented uh, us from uniting as a society and, and making that transition over the last decades. But yes, we all have a little bit of a role. We're all embedded in the system. We all, there's all, all of us have some individual things we can do, uh, recycling solar on our roof, switching over to an EV, growing vegetables in our gardens, you know, uh, et cetera, being a good neighbor. Uh, but we're, that's, that's necessary and it's right that we do everything at the individual level that we can, but it's really a system-wide problem. We need systemic solutions. We need to, we need collective action. We need to use the tools of democracy to force our governments uh, to, uh, you know, make this transition uh, in a extraordinarily like aggressive and rapid way. So is it us or them? It's both. But that balance is mostly on certain thems who must be stopped and certain, you know, uh, ways our economy operates that must be stopped. Uh, you know, abs we need an immediate moratorium on all new fossil fuel infrastructure, for example. We need to completely zero out any of the subsidies that are going to the fossil fuel sector, et cetera. So there's a whole raft of things that need to be done that are more on the stop the bad category. And then we also need to do things at the, on the uh, build the good uh, at the same time. So anyway, there's a lot of contradictions and paradoxes um, that need to be embraced and uh, for people to find their way and engage and not beat themselves up about it, but recognize that we live in contradiction. Uh, don't feel guilty about it, uh, understand it and act. Uh, uh, hold the, hold the two, the two truths and then find your pathway to the, you know, to become part of the solution. So that's part of what the book offers. And then that is obviously grounds for humor. <laughs> right paradoxes lead to humor like this these two opposite things are true and that can be very funny as um you know we're all in this together not <laughs> or some of the other uh uh you know um yeah any number of other elements of the book um, well, it looks like we have another caller uh brad you're on the air hi um the U.S. military is the single individual biggest consumer of oil and therefore one of the biggest polluters. So I would argue that they're not really defending us. They're killing us. And we are up to our necks in pro-corporate government, uh, pro government propaganda. Yeah, the, uh Go ahead, sorry. I'm yeah, no, that's a, a very good point about the U.S. military. I think it has a larger uh, 
fossil fuel consumption than some, you know, quite, you know, like than Spain or something like that, you know, so then not maybe Spain, but some, you know, medium, mid-sized or, you know, small-sized European country. So it is a huge, huge polluter uh, unto its unto its own. And yeah, there's all this, as you say, uh, recruiting posters and ads all over the place. And and like the, the military budget never goes down, it only goes up, et cetera, et cetera. All that is, is very true. And uh, there's many uh, movement, social movement, grassroots efforts uh, that twin um, uh, a transition uh, from a military economy to a peace economy uh, and link that to uh, to the climate crisis. So, and I support those efforts. I will note just, it's speaking of contradiction <laughs> as and paradox that Nate brought up, um, I will note that the U.S. military uh, or the Pentagon broadly, and it's and it maybe it's more in its analytical uh, wing, um, has also been you know because it is a to, in certain ways like very fact and data and reality based uh, institution. The same way the Wall Street Journal is sometimes a very fact and reality based things, even though we disagree with their ideologies, they do sometimes break certain important uh, reality based stories. So the, the the Pentagon has been identified. Uh, climate change as a national security threat and have been doing that for, dec uh, I don't know, two decades, I think, and more. Um, and all through the Trump administration, they were one of the few um, uh, voices in the national and the federal government that continued to do so in spite of all of the um, dismissal and a denial uh, happening uh, out of the White House and, uh, you know, the executive branch where they could uh, put in people who were uh, towing that climate denial, uh, climate delay kind of line. So, you know, that is interesting. They see that as a, um, they see climate change, Pentagon sees climate change as a uh, conflict multiplier. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and one example is Syria, where three bad harvests, you know, led, and, you know, obviously the civil war played a larger role, but three bad harvests somewhat put that civil war into a more acute footing and the forced migration uh that was definitely part of the Syrian uh, crisis. So climate change was a conflict multiplier there. Uh, just, yeah, uh, it could, I could go on. So that is just an in, worth noting. And, and they're also doing some very innovative renewable energy, solar powered, you know, base built, you know, base building and all that kind of stuff. So in, it's, it's, there's some, there's some contradictions in the mix there. Um, but good point. Um, good point, Brad, appreciate you bringing that up. Oh, and it looks like we have another caller, uh, Sierra. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for the program. Yeah, I really agree with approaching this issue in a spirit of hope and positivity. The pollution profiteers want us to be disempowered because that lowers our ability to work. I am so impressed with the tremendous range of solutions and hard work that people uh, and other species assume uh, are doing mm -hmm. all over the planet. And I just want to quote one solution that filled me with so much hope and, uh, when I heard about it, and that was the people across the world joining the issues of the climate and social and economic equality. So thanks again for your work. Bye. Absolutely. Um, that was uh, Sierra, thanks. Thank you for that. And um, 
Um, yeah, no, it's the the creativity and the ingenuity and the resilience and that people are bringing to this and the crafting of ingenious solutions, both local and global is, um, is, you know, just a remarkable and exemplary. Uh, and it's, uh, needs to be twinned with, you know, bold and radical action to rein in the fossil fuel industry and, 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 you know, stop emissions, uh, in this critical decade so that those solutions have a chance uh, to flourish and take root in an ecosystem that will support them. Um, so it's this combination of um, one of the chapters in the book is, um, where is this? It's, uh, it brings out the humor and some of what Sierra was saying, I think. Um, just trying to find the right title here. Um, right, no need to choose between mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. Just get good at all three, especially suffering. So, you know, we need to move on all of those fronts, um, mitigating uh, the, the emissions, uh, adapting uh, to, uh, you know, reinventing our society and economy to, you know, be in uh, a more humble uh, and reciprocal relationship with nature. Uh, and um, but the two need to work uh, together there. Uh, I was going to say something about um, yeah, so that's I, I like that Sierra shared uh, her her the, the solution that's inspiring her right now. I'll, I'll share the one that's inspiring me right now, and it's happening in, in El Paso, Texas, um, uh, and it's a citizen-led initiative uh, in you know with a lot of support from the sun from the very you know what inspires me very much nationally and what the Sunrise Movement. It's a youth-led climate movement that put the Green New Deal on the map and helped helped us sort of shift into more of an emergency. Uh, uh, sort of mindset to the degree that we have, not enough. Um, and it's called the Climate Charter in the city of El Paso. Uh, and, you know, it's, that's a arid region of Texas and with the expectation that it will come under a lot more pressure uh, of droughts uh, in the future as climate impacts unfold. And so among, uh, in addition to appointing a climate resiliency officer and committing the city to 80% renewables by 2030, the charter is doing something really extraordinary uh, when it, you know, if it passes, it will do this. And um, which is to, to, to implement uh, water sovereignty. Uh, you know, water is life as the standing stand up, excuse me, standing rock Sioux taught us water is life. And especially in an area like that, it's, it's even more so. So that's a, uh, if they were able to control uh, the water underneath the, limits the city limits of, of excuse me of el paso that is a, a huge uh achievement for ensuring their own survival uh into a, a climate challenge future but so that's a beautiful yes and that would be part of this initiative but there's a a very powerful no that's also built into that because i think it's 80 million gallons of that water that's under the city limits of El Paso is being used by the largest fossil fuel companies to frack the Permian shale, which is the largest uh, res you know, known reserve of fossil fuels in the U.S., um, not only polluting the groundwater, but bringing up out of the ground uh, the, the carbon poisons that we cannot afford anymore to bring out. And so that charter will not only have this beautiful yes that will sort of ensure the survival of El Paso as a city, but will then be this uh, great, uh, powerful blow 
uh, if it passes, of denying a critical resource and product to the the worst actors, the the the, the worst source of harm, arguably, uh, to our to our atmosphere here in the U.S. So uh, that's that's inspiring me as a um, citizen-led initiative with with really uh, game-changing uh, potential. Uh, and there's yeah. Many other solutions happening all over the world. Just multiply that a uh, hundred thousand fold. Uh, Nate, can I just mention that the, the that people, if they're not sure they want to buy the book, that they can uh, view uh, excerpts of it for free uh, at uh, the website that goes with the book, which is bettercatastrophe.com. And they can. There's a lot they can uh, check out there about the book, including uh, looking at these interesting visuals that you were pointing out. Uh, that are there as well as reading a few excerpts and then deciding whether they want to buy it that way. <laughs> Fantastic. So thanks for letting me point that out. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Nate Carlin, and today our guest is author Andrew Boyd to discuss his new book, I Want a Better Catastrophe. Feel free to give us a call at 608-256-2001. And it looks like we have another caller. This is wonderful. Amy. Yeah, hi, um, Andrew. Um, my name's Amy Schulz, and I'm the president of Physicians for Social Responsibility here in Wisconsin. And um, one of the things that we have been working on um, these last couple of years is uh, we're wanting to close down the nuclear reactor at Point Beach on the shores of Lake Michigan. And part of it is because it's, you know, embrittled and uh, dangerous and uh, you know there's so many things that are, are wrong with it mm-hmm. and um, I'm just wondering if you would address kind of this uh, what I would call a nuclear renaissance uh, this kind of mm-hmm. um, cheerleading of the nuclear industry whether it be through you know Bill Gates's book or Oliver Stone's film or um, you know even the Inflation Reduction Act is um, you know supporting this exploration of nuclear as a solution and of course we feel like it's a catastrophic uh, sort of <laughs> solution which we are not uh, in favor of and just wondering um, right. you know kind of if you can you know talk a little bit yeah, about I... the, the myths that are, are being uh, purported with uh, the proposals uh, to to yes. build small modular reactors here in Wisconsin. Absolutely. I, you know, I don't know uh, the local conditions on the ground, and I think some of these questions are somewhat site-specific. If there's a, a you know, an old nuclear plant that's very vulnerable to failure, that's built on an earthquake fault, then, you know, then that's different than um, some of the nuclear reactors, you know, power, you know, 80% of the, the energy in France, uh, you know, comes from nuclear, or 80, 85, I think, maybe even. So maybe there's some different, different uh, local circumstances. But in general, my attitude is... Um, uh, you know, and I worked, uh, you know, uh, in back in the 80s, uh, you know, against nuclear weapons and um, lesser degree against nuclear power. But somewhat I heard Helen Caldicott speak back in the day. And, you know, Physicians for Social Responsibility is a is a great organization that I've admired for decades. Um, but, you know, my sense right now is that we should not be building any new nuclear plants, but that in terms of making this transition off of dangerous, dirty fuels, you know, fossil fuels, nuclear to clean, safer fuels, you know, wind, solar, geothermal, tidal, um, that we we have to, you know, choose what we, you know, there's a, there's a transition plan. And Germany, for example, decided to phase out their nuclear um, uh, early in that process, uh, which, you know, hurt them very much, you know, when the Ukraine war happened, but also 
has forced them to keep the, their, their dirtiest coal plants, uh, you know, online. And I would have, you know, I think 2020 hindsight is telling us that, yes, we need to take those nukes offline as fast as possible. Look at Fukushima, look at uh, Chernobyl, uh, you know, who knows what the next one of those will be. It could be any of these plants, you know, New York City, where I'm from, you know, I think it's less than 30 miles up the river is, um, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the plant. Um, you probably know, uh, Amy, um, but I'm forgetting the name right now, but it's been, you know, that's like near 25 million people. And uh, imagine if that uh, had a meltdown. Um, but, you know, it's funny. It's not funny. It's, 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 again, one of these paradoxes or contradictions or ironies or uh, difficult choices of catastrophe. And the nukes are a catastrophe that may happen or may not happen. Um, and if they, if they do, it could be utterly, you know, sort of catastrophic, you know, just profoundly catastrophic, as we've been mentioning. Um, but we do know that putting more carbon emissions in the air is definitely going to cause a catastrophe. So my very 30,000 feet, very generic sort of attitude about this is let's take the dirtiest fossil fuel plants offline first. Uh, well, first, let's not build any new nuclear. If we're bringing new energy in, solar, wind are proving to be extremely cost effective. Um, it's currently more cost effective to build new solar than keep a existing coal plant going. I mean, with those economics, we shouldn't be doing anything but solar and wind and uh, battery technology, um, you know, solar, wind and other other renewables. So let's not build any new nukes. And then in priority order of taking these things offline, let's take the dirtiest fossil fuel plants off first and then then the nuclear plants off next. So. And I think, you know, Gavin Newsom in California, for example, decided to keep the um, Diablo Canyon uh, nuclear plant, which supplies 9% of California's, uh, you know, energy online for another five years in spite, in spite of these, you know, long, decade-long environmental effort to take it offline. But I think they will take it off in five years. So it, these are very hard choices. Nobody wants to make them, um, uh, but they have to be made. And that's sort of my little one, two, three priority list. Uh, but I'm not. I'm not an. You know, I'm not a planner, and I'm not an energy expert. I'm a bit of a uh, observer here, but that you know, and an activist. And you know, that's that's just my little quick little summary. You're more of an expert in this than I. And good luck with your campaign. Um, thank you for doing what you're doing. Yeah, we're we're coming up a little bit on time here. I just want to make sure we got in uh, one one of the things. Maybe this would be like if I were calling in, what I would ask, which is um, you, one of the things that keeps coming up in this climate discussion is the question of children and having children, and, and something you touch on in your book. I, I wondered if you could talk me through why why is having children such a a live issue in in this discussion? Yeah, and it comes up uh, in the book. Uh, it comes up in you know the climate conversations it's been coming up a lot in my um talks and and i do this as i mentioned this stand-up tragedy uh tour this show uh, to go along with the book and uh, at the beginning or early on in the in the um show i asked people uh to share with a neighbor in you know that they're sitting next to what is the hardest thing for them about climate change what's the hardest thing and some people will say the complexity the overwhelming the feeling that it's too late um the inequality uh, the fact that we know what to do and we've known what to do and we're not doing it, you know, list all these things. And invariably, people will also mention um, the fact that, you know, if there's if they're a young person and I spoke at various colleges in Los Angeles, where I am right now, just in the last couple of days, young people say, I don't 
want to have kids. I don't trust the future enough to have kids. In Chicago, there were more older people and they said, my grand, my kids don't want to have kids, you know? So these people are not going to have grandkids. And, you know, I don't have kids, but um, uh, it is, uh, no, you know, it's not just the hardest thing to do, but it's the most beautiful thing to do. That's what everybody reports. You know, it's the, it's one of the greatest uh, things we can do. The, it makes sense that we carry on the generations. It's part of the, the human story. Um, and it's, uh, you know, just, uh, I, it just breaks your heart open to, to new feelings you never knew you had, uh, as one person described it to me. Uh, it's like the acid of, 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 of love. <laughs> you know, it just busts you open to new, new levels of feeling you didn't even know you were capable of. So, uh, it's what a heartbreak, what a tragedy, what a what a terrible, terrible thing that we've that that we're in a situation where people don't trust the future enough to have kids. Um, so there's that, um, and then you know, as you say, a diversity of views that I went and collected for this book. Uh, Gopal Dayaneni, a leading voice in the climate justice movement, he has two kids. I interviewed him, and he was like. Uh, not having kids is a terrible survival strategy for the species. You know, it's like, oh, right, good point. You know, <laughs> but then again, um, the you know, if you go to any of these carbon footprint calculators or whatever, uh, you can you know, flying is bad, and uh, you know, driving an SUV, you know, that makes you know whatever every day to work is bad, but whatever. But the worst worst thing in terms of your carbon footprint is having a kid. <laughs> you know, it's just like you're creating a whole other human that's going to have a whole other carbon footprint, and we'll have, um, you know. But then there's the question of like, well, where are you doing that? What what level of consumption are you bringing that child into? Because it's not like there's a lot of, oh, we, we have too many people on the planet. Well, we, yes, we have too many people on the planet. But really what we have are too many rich people, <laughs> you know, too many people consuming too much. You know, the average carbon footprint, quote unquote, of an American is 150 times that of an Ethiopian. Right. So then there's there's interesting there's groups like. Um, uh, conceivable futures. Uh, it's a mostly woman-led group who are uh, trying to come to terms with whether they, you know, as individuals want to have kids and they interview each other and do workshops and share that uh, more widely uh, throughout society. So anyone curious about this might want to look at that. Uh, Google conceivable futures. It's a great organization. But, um, um, you know, they... So some of the people there are like adopting people from, you know, young children who are orphaned uh, from those countries. And they're like wondering, wait, I'm taking a, a human out of a place where they will have a small footprint and, you know, into a large. So there's a lot of lot of complexity uh, there. And it's, it's very heartbreaking. And um, I think, you know, people sometimes say, well, I'm going to have a kid and they're going to be part of the solution. You know, yeah, they'll have a footprint, but they're going to be part of the solution. Uh, they're going to become a climate activist. They're going to invent a more efficient solar panel, you know, whatever. So I think it's fraught. Uh, but uh, the book helps us uh, step through a lot of that, those dilemmas and complexities and, and doesn't say this is right and this is wrong, but uh, gives the tools and the, the various points of view that allows somebody to find their way through it um, uh, whether they want to go on birth strike as some uh, climate aware people are doing in the UK and elsewhere, or whether they want as Gopal to have a kid uh, as a good survival strategy for the species and just uh, bring them up to be a part of the solution. So anyway, uh, it's fraught, but there, there you are. And the book <laughs> might help people with that.
that question. So right here at the end, um, it seems like you started the book as someone who committed to who's committed to action despite maybe facing futility, and then you talk to these people, these eight experts, and I guess I'm curious: Did you feel like your opinion changed when you talked to these people, and and how, or did you kind of end where you started? Yeah, I mean, I think I learned a lot along the way, a lot about the nature of our of the climate crisis and many different ways to approach it. And I think I got sobered up over the course of the writing of this, not sobered into inaction, but just sobered up to the challenge that we're facing and um, inspired, not in the way maybe you would be like, woohoo, inspired, <laughs> but like, you know, inspired at the deeper soul level by the commitment, the resilience, the resourcefulness, the wisdom, the courage, the groundedness of many of the people I talked to and um, maybe became more uh, Catholic, small C in that embracing many pathways, many perspectives. Uh, and I'll just, you know, I'll note like a couple other little takeaways from some of the people I talked to, you know, Gopal for example, you know, and, and it all settled into, yeah, I think it all settled into this notion of a better catastrophe that sort of sums up our our task, our challenge. So for Gopal, um, this leading voice in the climate justice movement, you know, based in Oakland, part of this uh, movement generation collective, you know, he says, we're going to suffer. So let's distribute that suffering as equitably as we can. So for him, that's where the better the better and better catastrophe comes from. By centering justice and centering those who are most oppressed and most marginalized and putting them at the center of the solutions. Uh, for Adrienne Marie Brown, she was like, uh, we're in for a hard fall. So let's fall as if we're holding a child on our chest. You know, as we fall, we're taking the brunt of the fall. We're bracing those people and places that we most love, protecting them as as our society goes through some future unraveling, a future crisis. Uh, Sorry to interrupt you, Andrew. We, we, we got to yeah. move on to the next show. But there thanks so much for taking time to talk with us. Um, thanks to our guest, Andrew Boyd. Thanks to producer Jade and our sound engineer, Summer. Thanks, everyone. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison, Wisconsin. Stay tuned for Mel and Floyd.